Okay, anyway, let's continue, right? Uh, okay, so um, last week, last week we mentioned that it's all about interest rate that is influencing the stock market, right? And why interest rate is influencing the stock market is because of inflation. And the Federal Reserve, which is the Central Bank of America, is trying to control inflation, bring it back down to 2%, which is their target, so that the economy will not overheated, will not be overheated. When an economy is overheated, things get too expensive and then people cannot afford to buy things. And that is very bad for the economy. So for the past 15 months, the Federal Reserve has been increasing the interest rate, right, from 0% all the way up to 5% today, right? So that has been the key the key indicator for the market to look for inspiration for the stock market whether it's to go up or to go down so that is pretty clear and we have been repeating that week over week but now since last week something interesting has happened the market started to realize that maybe the interest rate is not helping the Federal Reserve to achieve what they want to do, right? The inflation is still very high. And this, and this culprit comes from something that we use every single day. And this thing is a commodity called oil and gas. That's why today's topic is about oil prices. And if you have been tracking the oil prices, you will notice that oil price has been on the rise uh, at one point, the, uh, the brand crude oil even hit a price of $90, a price that we have not, see, have not seen for the past, I think, at least three years already, right? So it has breached that price. But um, just now before the live session started, um, I took a peek on the price. It has sort of softened a little bit, but it is still hovering around $89 for the brand crude oil. So it is still at a very high level. And we all know that generally speaking, whatever you use on a daily basis, it involves oil and gas, right? Your electricity, some of the power plant is powered by gas, you know, all your cosmetic, your lip balm and things like that. It's all from petroleum-based derivatives. And then you have plastics, you know, adhesive, whatnot. Whatever that you can think of has definitely got something to do with oil and gas. And therefore, when oil prices goes up, it is a very bad thing for inflation. So, on one hand, the Federal Reserve has been increasing interest rate to try to bring inflation down. But on the other hand, oil prices is going up, which is not following what the Fed wants it to be. So, are we going into this deadlock whereby, you know, it is an for sure stagflation is in the horizon, right? What is stagflation? Stagflation means inflation is very high, but the economy is stagnant. It is not moving. So it is a very dangerous situation and, and, and it may cause the economy to have very bad implication um, in the long run. So, but the question then would be, if the effect is trying to increase the interest rate to bring down inflation, then why oil prices is still going up? Isn't that very weird? What went wrong over there? All right? Okay, so first, we need to understand when the Fed increased the interest rate, what they are trying to do. Okay? Now, if you think logically, 
when interest rate is high, it's very expensive for businesses to borrow and invest in their business. When the businesses don't invest in their business, then it means that maybe they may not employ too many people or maybe they even want to uh, fire some people, right? They, they, they maybe they want to fire some people because people are not spending because they would rather put their money into savings because the bank is giving them a better interest rate. So from there, when demand falls, then ultimately prices will start coming down as well. So that is what the Fed was trying to do when they increased the interest rate. Now, on the other hand, while that narrative is applicable to most of the things, including oil and gas, but there's another factor that is playing out lately that perhaps the world was not ready to think about it. Right. Or rather, they didn't see this coming. So what happened in the past week? Okay, so as oil prices started to come down because uh, demand is affected, economy is slowing down and things like that, we have all these oil producing countries, right? Like the OPEC countries, uh, Russia, you know, and even US themselves starts to face this situation where their, their oil the, the oil that they, they, that, they dis, that they extract to sell fall in prices because there's a fall in demand for oil and gas products, right? But just to give you a context, right? If you read the news recently, you notice that the Middle Eastern countries, recently they have been very aggressive on investing. They are investing in all these tech startups and things like that. So they have been plowing a lot of money into the financial market. So much so that there's a report that I read saying that in order to sustain the Middle Eastern kind of lavish investment kind of uh, appetite, right? Throwing money, investing in things, uh, investing in Credit Suisse, which didn't turn out well, you know, and things like that. The oil price has to be above $100 per barrel in order for them to sustain that kind of investment appetite. So if you think about it, if oil price starts to come down, it has a direct impact on the Middle Eastern countries. They would have less revenue coming from oil revenue, but at the same time, they are spending a lot of money. So in order to balance this equation, right, they have to do something, right? They have to make sure that the oil price is at a comfortable level in order for them to continue to collect money so that they continue to make investments to make future money. So what they did last week is that they decided to cut 1 million barrels per day production, right? 1 million barrels per day. That is 30 million barrels per month. Now, then your immediate question would be, what is 1 million barrel? Is it a lot? Or is it a little bit, right? Then now I need to explain to you a little bit about the oil and gas industry in general. Now, let me just ask you guys a question and it will be a, quite an easy guess, right? So the question is, do you know how much does the world require to run and operate um, with the amount of oil and gas per day? 
So in other words is how many million barrels a day that the world requires in order to run effectively on a day-to-day basis. Can you guys guess what is the number? And a clue here is it is a very easy number. This number has three digit one. Can you guys take a guess? If you guys want to take a guess, please type into the comment box so that uh, we know that partly you can listen to this podcast clearly, all right? Yes, um, thank you. Um, thank you for the comment. Uh, it shows that whatever I'm talking right now, I'm not talking to the air. I'm actually talking to real people who are listening to this, pod- to this podcast. Yes, correct. The answer is 100 million barrels per day. That's how much the world needs a day to run, right? And can you guys also guess roughly how many million barrels per day are we producing right now? It should be quite an easy guess also. Well, uh, Google says 98 million as first answer, 100 million. Okay. 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 Why, why I say it is a very easy question to guess as well on the supply side is because the demand has to be equal to the supply in order to get a price. Right? So if the world thinks that the oil price today is $90 per barrel, and if the demand a day is 100 million barrels a day, then obviously the supply is also 100 million barrels. It cannot be more. And if it's more than, as I speak to you right now, then the oil price will be start increasing already, right? So yes, so the demand and supply is 100 million barrels per day. Now, remember just now I mentioned that Saudi Arabia which is the head of the OPEC, decided to cut 1 million barrels per day until end of the year. So in mathematical terms, how much percentage are they cutting per day? 1%, right? 1%, which is a huge amount. And because of this 1%, it's enough to spur all these traders and speculators to go and trade the market and trade the oil price quite substantially over the past one week. So therefore, from 80 over dollars today, it has reached almost about $90 per barrel already. Now, remember in the past few weeks, we also mentioned about this thing called Strategic Petroleum Reserve in the US, the SPR in the US. What is this reserve? This reserve basically is like a like an insurance, like a, like a storage for the US, whereby they accumulate all this crude oil and they save it underground in all these barrels and uh, being guarded by heavy military and things like that. So these are very strategic petroleum reserve. That's why it's called SPR, right? And what happened is that during emergency times when let's say, for example, there's a disruption in oil supply, then what the US could do is to draw supply from this SPR so that the country can continue to run without much um, disruption in the economy. So since the pandemic, what happened is that because all these oil rigs cannot run, right? They cannot produce. So the US has been drawing their reserve from the SPR. And before the pandemic, their SPR typically has around 600 million barrels sitting underground, which means to say they can afford to, to um, generate the whole world to run for about a week, right? If let's say, for example, all the oil rigs in the world stop running, they can, they can pump the world for six days. But because of the pandemic, 
And because no oil rigs were running at that time, and they were drawing, just drawing their inventory, right now, their inventory level is roughly around 350 million barrels. So if you think about it, right, their reserve have lost almost 50%, which is a very dangerous situation because if, let's say, for example, touch wood, another pandemic hit again, Oh, you may need to draw down another 50%. Then the entire SPR will be dry, right? So this is a very dangerous situation for the US in terms of national security. So by hook or by crook, they need to replenish this reserve, right? And previously, we have already mentioned that the, uh, the administration of the US uh, indicated that as long as the oil price is around $60 per barrel, they will be aggressively buying crude oil to replenish their inventory. But because oil price now is like 70, 80, 90, which is quite high, so they are doing it very gradually. They are taking their own sweet time to replenish um, their oil reserve. Then I heard some argument coming to say to me that, hey, you are saying that oil prices um, is going up. Yes, I understand that Saudi Arabia is cutting their supply, but it shouldn't affect US very much, right? Because, you know, US have their own oil, oil field, they are pumping their own oil and things like that. So Saudi Arabia want to play their thing, go and play, right? Oil price, whatever that they want to sell is their problem because US is self-sustainable in the sense. Now, this person is partially right. He's partially right because US, yes, no doubt, it's somewhat self-sustainable, right? They have their own oil field. At the same time, they have their own reserve. But because the world is round and the world operates together, when the world oil price is at a high level, it's very hard to imagine that the oil price in the US don't rise together. Why do I say that? If the US don't care about the world, they cut the world and say, hey, oil I produce myself, I sell to my own self, right? And I think the comfortable price is, let's say, for example, $60 per barrel. I'm going to sell $60 per barrel. What is going to happen to them is kind of like similar to what happened between Singapore and Malaysia, if you think about it, right? Now, Singapore, oil, Singapore petrol pump prices is market price. So their raw 95 over there can be easily, if I'm not mistaken, if, if, if you have Singaporean uh, viewer here, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's about seven or eight sing dollar per liter, if I'm not mistaken, or seven, eight ringgit per liter. I'm not so sure, but please let me know. Um, now, whereas in Malaysia, we all know that our petrol is subsidized, right? Two ringgit and five cent per liter for raw 95. So a lot of Singaporean cars like to come to Malaysia to pump petrol. Right, So that would be the situation if US also play the game. If US cut the world off and say, I'm going to sell my oil for $60 per barrel and I limit this $60 only for Americans. Now, I can be quite certain that there will be people in the US somehow would smuggle this oil and gas and buy it at $60 per barrel and go out to the world and say, I sell you at market price. Maybe 10% discount. Right, I still make plenty of money. So therefore, US oil price will follow in tandem of the world oil price. So that's why if you see very often, if, if you watch Bloomberg or any other, all these major news, right? Typically when they report the oil prices, they always come up with two prices. One is called the brand crude oil price 
which is at $90 today. And there's another price called WTI, right? The WTI crude oil. This is the US oil price. And you always see there's a gap, right? If, if crude oil price is $90 per barrel, right now the WTI is trading, if I'm not mistaken, is about $85. So there's a spread of $5, right? Then you will start asking again. Just now you said US oil is supposed to trade almost the same price as the world one. Then why, why now, why suddenly you got the $5 gap, right? Uh, okay, so it comes down to how the oils are being this, uh, extracted. Now, in most parts of the world, all the oil reserves are underwater in the sea or in terrains that is very hard to extract. But in the US, you know, um, they have very good geographical uh, landscape and whatnot. A lot of their oil reserves are actually on land and it is very cheap to actually produce on land, right? And because the, the production cost is slightly lower than the world, so therefore the WTI crude oil price is also slightly lower than the brand oil uh, benchmark price. So now you understand how oil works and things like that. Then now let's go back to inflation. Okay? Inflation, right now, the Fed is betting that you guys will not have jobs. You guys will think that things are so expensive. You guys will think that taking a loan is not feasible. So you are not going to borrow money. You are not going to spend. So in that way, inflation is going to come down. But from the business point of view, yes, I'm going to lower my price because no one is buying my stuff. But at the same time, my cost of production, because most of the things comes from oil and gas, and oil and gas prices has been increasing. There's no way for me to lower down my price even though no one is buying. And that is the, that is the dilemma that the world is facing today. And because of this dilemma, in the past one week, even though the past one week was quite a quiet week because US had Labor Day holiday and we celebrated Hari Merdeka and whatnot. Uh, but nonetheless, because of this dilemma that we are facing right now, the whole market is on a downtrend. Right? And this downtrend, um, I foresee it will at least last until the end of the year because what happened is that Saudi Arabia mentioned that this one million barrel cut a day is going to last until December 2023, right? December 2023. Now, this is what they say now only, you know, we don't know what they will say come 20, December 2023. We are not sure whether they will say, hey, if I start to increase back my supply again, then the oil price will start falling. And because I'm still spending and I need the oil price to be at $100 per barrel in order to sustain my lifestyle, I cannot produce more oil. In fact, Maybe I want to cut some more production. Ha, then that's another round of headache for the US, the Europe, and potentially to the rest of the world. Right? So that is a big risk over there. And to add on to that risk in the oil and gas industry is Russia. Right? Maybe because Saudi Arabia said that, uh, you know, we decided to cut 1 million barrels per, per day until the end of the year. Suddenly, Russia also decided to come and join again. The they said, okay, we will be cutting 300,000 barrels per day. 300,000 barrel, 300, barrels per day. So if you add Saudi Arabia and Russia together in the equation, 
now you are talking about a 1.3% less supply in the world market. And at the situation where the US is trying to buy more oil to replenish their inventory, <laughs> less supply, more demand. So now you can imagine how oil price is going to play out towards the end of the year and how, what kind of headache is our friend Jerome Powell is having every single day, right? But now it comes back to Malaysia, right? Because at the end of the day, today's topic is oil price rising, whether it is a good thing or it is a bad thing. Now, so let's come back to the Malaysian context. For the Malaysian context, oil price increase, of course, it is a good thing because we are an oil exporting country. And therefore, when oil price increases, directly our Petronas will make more money. And because Petronas makes more money, it can pay out a higher dividend to the government of Malaysia. Then the government of Malaysia can use this money to build highways, uh, build new infrastructure and things like that. And at the end of the day, we all as Rakyat, we are going to benefit from that. Very cool. But then, why is our ringgit at 4 ringgit and 67 cents? And it looks like 470 is, is not a dream anymore, right? Maybe in the next few days, we will see 470 and maybe even towards $5, right? So where, so where is this coming from? Now, to me, the explanation is very simple. While oil and gas, while oil and gas prices go up, it's good for Malaysia. But because today, ultimately, we are a trading nation and most of our GDP comes from um, selling semiconductor goods to all this Apple, Samsung and whatnot, right? So all this manufacturing and exporting portion of GDP has become so large that it makes our oil and gas export looks a little bit smaller. So while oil price increase is good for the country, the impact is not as great as let's say in the 80s or in the 90s. So that's point number one. Point number two is that now you have this Jerome Powell thinking what he wants to do with interest rate or whether even interest rate is the right thing to actually bring down inflation or not, right? But right now as the central banker, the head of central banker, I think one of the very few tools that he can use right now is just to continue the game and just to increase interest rate. And if that happens, that can only mean one thing it will keep attracting more investors and more people to convert their local currencies into the US dollar because US dollar is giving you a much better yield. So why is ringgit at 467 and potentially be 470 in the near term? It's because of these two back. It's because of these two factors. And until these two factors can be reversed, it is very hard to imagine ringgit can go back to, let's say, $4 per US dollar. And more interestingly today is that Bank Negara Malaysia has decided to maintain the OPR at 3%, which means to say that we are not increasing our interest rate. So therefore, our ringgit will look less attractive to the US dollar today. Because US dollar, even though in September, the likelihood is that they will not increase interest rate as well. But because of this situation, this inflation situation, now people starting to think whether in November, the Fed is going to start increase the interest rate again. And with that expectation, I think US dollar can go up. So might as well, I convert my money today first. 
And that is the reason why we see Ringgit has been weakening uh, for the past one week. Right, so all this has very bad implication to our local stock market uh, because our most of some of our companies that relies on import because because you guys know right number one most of our food is imported so inflation to us we all show kena one right and then a lot of these companies rely on imports for their productions right you import uh, raisins to produce plastics and things like that so all these companies will be affected quite badly but on the other hand there are also a group of companies that will benefit as well from this weakening of Ringgit, right? Number one, because Ringgit is at 467 or 470, Ringgit is super cheap in the eyes of foreign investors. And if they see value in Malaysian stock market, because if you look at Malaysian stock market, right, in the past five years, we have actually dropped 20%, you know. We have dropped 20% on KLCI compared to five years ago. And on top of that, ringgit is so low at four ringgit at 67 cent. So in the eyes of a foreign investors, they may see value in our local market. So we may attract foreign investments into Malaysian stock market. Now, depending on how you see it, some people will see that, oh, very good. Foreign investors come in to buy our stocks. Our stock price can go up. I can make money. Well, fair. That's correct. But I often see foreign money, if they come in too much, is actually bad. Uh, the, technical, the technical term for this is called the hot money. Hot money means this money come in for, for a quick gain. One. So they come in, they see value, they buy already, and when stocks go up by 5%, 10%, they will sell money and they will pull out the entire funds back to their country. What happened is that you will see our stock market suddenly plunge like that. So that's the danger if there's too much hot money in the local stock market. So um, on one hand, speculators will like hot money to come in. But to me, always when hot money comes in means, you know, you sell, sell into strength. If Maybank goes up by another ringgit, sell man, don't wait. <laughs> because if foreign money pull out, then, uh, then you can find a better chance to buy again. So uh, that's... Uh, that's what I think about the Malaysian market in terms of ringgit. And the other thing is exporters. We are very strong in furniture exporting, right? All the Johor companies. We are also very strong in tech, right? And now tech is very hot, right? And all these sectors are considered export sectors. Export sectors, I tell you, in the next six months or so, very likely they will do very well even though they are not selling more chips. They will just benefit simply because Ringgit is weak. Right? Uh, but then uh, you will have some investors who see the other way. Th these investors, they will see that, yes, you will make more money in terms of Forex gain, but this is not real gain in the sense that you are not selling more goods. You are just making money because you are lucky. You are lucky that Ringgit is weak. So ultimately, again, there will be a group of people who will start selling all these tech stocks and all these furniture stocks. If, let's say, for example, market decided to push these sectors up. So if you, if you, if you look at the Malaysian market, right, while there are small pockets of positives here and there, which will help the Malaysian market to thrive, but over the next six months, a longer horizon, 
what I'm afraid is number one, hot money pull out from the country. Number two is people take profit on this narrative that you know all the gains that the exporters are making today is not sustainable. So today, if you look at the KLCI index, um, it is trading at I think slightly above 1004, uh, but I still think that 1004 is a very crucial border. If it drops below 1004 for the KLCI, then I think it may retreat further because then people will take it as a cue that, yeah, yeah, I think people now notice that, you know, even the Malaysian economy is not as great because of what is happening around the world. So therefore, let's just sell and wait and see first, right? That will trickle down to 2024 outlook, whether 2024 will be a better year for stock market. Um, right now, we are already in September, right? So on and off, you will start seeing people start to predict what's going to happen in 2024. But just an preliminary guess of what it's going to look like, I don't think it's going to be a very beautiful picture. I know every year people will say that, oh, next year is a better year. We hope that the market can go up. But I just don't see how the market can go up given all the difficulties that we are facing today. Now, you guys are listening to this podcast, so you know what is going on roughly there are a lot of people who are not aware of what is happening around them, right? And they will start seeing that one day stock price go up, they FOMO and they will start buying. And all these people, if they are not careful, they are going to become a wrong-term investor instead of a long-term investor, right? So it's very careful, uh, well, or rather you guys have to be very careful when you when you look at your portfolio, when you look at your investment going forward, at least, I think at least for the next six months, right? you guys have to really be diligent enough to keep yourself updated with what's going on in the market. Now, in order to help you guys with, with uh, this, this exercise, right? so we have finally decided that we are going to restart the FAQ show again. Right? Who knows what is FAQ show? If you know what is FAQ show, please type five in the comment box. So I know that you guys are loyal followers of Mr. Money TV. Right? But for those of you who don't know what is the FAQ show, uh, or what we used to call it last time as the fuck show, right? So it is a channel where I talk about the stock market and I deep dive into stocks. Right? But what we notice is that because it is very technical and it's very niche, so it is not able to reach out to a lot of viewers out there. And, 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 we, and we thought that this is, this is a wasted effort because we are trying to tell very important information and hopefully people can learn from that and become a more informed investor. So this time around with the relaunch of the FAQ show, the approach is slightly different. And we really hope that it's going to benefit everybody. So this time round, the FAQ show is going to go up a few notches. So I'm, go I'm, I'm not going to go into stocks. I'm not going to go into technical stuff. It's very basic from how you should prepare yourself mentally, how you should prepare yourself, uh, how do you control your behavior when you, uh, when you look at investments. And then from there, how do you find the correct investment asset classes to, to potentially invest in and how to tackle those 
investment assets. So it's a more, if you would like to call it a one-on-one approach. So from there, uh, hopefully we can provide more investment literacy kind of content. And then once we think that the audience that we have in the FAQ show is more ready, then only we go back into the normal FAQ show that we used to do in the past. If you guys think that is a good idea, please type six in the comment box, right? So this, this is something that we have thought of for a very long time. And, um, and um, during this thought process, what we have done is that we have actually put the fuck show, the Frankie in the fuck show into Mr. Money TV to, because you don't want me to suddenly lose that airtime, right? So my airtime was put back into Mr. Money TV while we try to figure out how we want to make the FAQ show. And right now, I think we got it. I think with this new approach, it is going to be more beneficial to you guys. So therefore, we are coming out again with the new content and our first video will be immediately after this live podcast session, which is around 9.30. So if you can catch... 9.45, sorry, it's going to be at 9.45. So after this live session, you can go to the FAQ show. Um, there's going to be the first video over there. So hopefully you guys like it. If you guys like it, click like, subscribe, share with your friends, uh, tell your friends about this channel. And hopefully not just through this podcast, but also through FAQ show and occasionally still on Mr. Money channel as well. We will continue to provide good personal finance and good investment literacy kind of content to you guys, right? Um, I think with that, uh, maybe what I'll do now is to open up for Q&A because I think oil and gas is a rather technical and, and a kind of a specialized kind of topic. So maybe you guys have a lot of questions that, that, that you would want to ask. Now, caveat, uh, I'm not an oil and gas industry person. I don't work in the oil and gas industry. So my knowledge on oil and gas is also limited, but I will try my very best based on my experience through the lens of an investor to help you guys to understand the sector better, right? So let's see if we have any questions here in the comment box. Wow, I'm actually impressed that we still have 110 people watching the live right now, even though we started the... Uh, uh, the live lit. Now, again, I'm very sorry for the technical error that we um, experienced just now. Um, apparently, one of our devices uh, spoiled, but luckily we have a backup. So currently, we are using our backup devices to run this live. And hopefully, hopefully next week onwards, we will not face this problem anymore. But thanks, you guys, the 111 people who are watching right now. So are you asking US will subsidize their oil? Now, the US is a free market, it's a capital market. I don't think they believe in the concept of subsidization. Well, at least not a lot, maybe a very small amount just to get some political popularity over there. But uh, generally speaking, US is a free market. So um, no, I don't think they're going to subsidize their oil. Okay, KL Chong says, import should not impact so much because we trade a lot among ASEAN and everyone depreciates against US dollar, no? Uh, yes, you are correct. Most of the currencies apart from the US dollar is depreciating. Depending on how the respective central banks react to the Fed's interest rate, then we may uh, fluctuate accordingly lah, among our ASEAN countries. Now, the most resilient currency right now is Sing dollar because Sing dollar tracks the US interest rate very closely. 
it's not like Malaysia. Malaysia will take into account, oh, whether my rakyat can afford 3.5% interest or not. If I think they cannot afford, then I better stay at 3% even though US is increasing. So therefore, we have this uh, gap that is widening between Malaysian interest rate and also uh, the US interest rate. But um, when you say import shouldn't uh, uh, impact much because we are trading among ASEAN, but you have to understand that even though we are ASEAN neighbors, when we do trades, we often trade in US dollar. <laughs> we often trade in US dollar, right? Even though I'm trading with a Thai counterpart or even a Vietnamese counterpart, the currency that we use is usually US dollar. So US dollar will still impact the price and our imports. What is, uh, okay, HS asks, what is Saudi trying to do with this oil production cut to drive the oil price up and compensate for the money lost from the cuts? Is like a balance game for them or to teach US a lesson? Um, mm, that's a good question. Um, I think it's more on the first reason whereby they need to sustain their oil price level at $100 per barrel so that they continue to do investment and to fill the hole that they lost all the money in their investment, right? Especially in Credit Suisse and all the tech companies recently. But yes, you are correct. There are some school of thoughts that says that, you know, they purposely want to play against the big boys, right? Okay, you say on tame inflation, right? But I have to, I have the ability to show you you are not the taiko forever. I also have a say in this world economy. So I'm going to do something and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> slap you in the face, right? But, but we don't know. This is, this is high-level politics, right? But for us, from, from, an, from an investor perspective, all we can do is just to react to whatever information that we have. And this is the information that we have. So all we can do today is to be very careful with every step that we take. And perhaps we need to have a, a, a longer horizon in our investments. Don't just say that, oh, today I put in, hopefully next month I can make some money. No, because chances are things is going to turn worse and worse in the next six months. Seems like capital A's PN17 status doesn't affect them much. Okay, PN17 is not checkmate, okay? PN17 basically just means that you have problem with your financials and you are given 12 months to regularize your situation, okay? So it is not checkmate, they are not dead, right? It is not bankrupt. And what is going on with capital A is that, you know, after the pandemic, people go to travel, people fly here, fly there, and things like that. And if you compare their quarterly result against the past two years, they are doing tremendously well. And because of this result, now they are able to service the hefty borrowings that they had in the past, right? If I'm not mistaken, if I recall correctly, they had about 4 billion borrowings, if I'm not mistaken. If you guys remember, can remind me again. But yeah, so right now with good business and things like that, now suddenly they are back to business, they are back in the game. And that is the reason why Capital A has been doing very well. Well, basically not just Capital A, right? If you, if you think about it, airports also did very well. Malaysian airports, for very obvious reason. If you want to travel, you must go to the airport. If people want to go to Singapore, if they want to go to Australia, maybe they use KLIA as a transit, 
again, airports will benefit. So all these uh, related industries, tourism industries and whatnot, they will benefit from this narrative. Okay, Jim Wong asks, what's your thought of JF Tech now that um, Huawei seems to be um, back in the game again? Um, okay, uh, wow, this is another good question. Uh, okay, obviously now I have a little bit, just a little bit of reserve. And this reserve is that now, because US say that they want to be self-sustainable in terms of chips, right? So they have pulled out everything from China and go back to the US. Uh, Samsung apparently has also pulled out some of their facilities in China and they put those facilities in Vietnam, you know, Indonesia, da 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 da, right? So China has a problem. And how China will solve this problem is by then um, come up with their own solutions. So they build their own factories to, to fill the hole, uh, to fill the hole that US went back and Korean and whatnot, all chow from China. So if China is building their own capacity and if Huawei have this new technology that requires our services in the past, did they come up with facilities to replace us as well? Because this is something that I haven't got updated, so I don't know, but I think the risk is there. So um, in order to answer your question in terms of JF tech, um, then I think what we need to do is to keep an eye on their announcement, especially on their quarterly result. Look at the notes, right? The notes will tell you in terms of their prospects, in terms of their outlook, and see whether they give you any hint about China increasing their orders and things like that. If China technology keeps improving, but they don't tell you the narrative that, you know, my orders from China is increasing, then you know maybe maybe China is really trying to be self-sustainable as well. Then does that mean that it is a downside risk for Malaysian tech in general? That's something that we need to think. What is, what is stopping the investment in oil and gas to explore new wells and facilities to boost production? Uh, the price is relatively high compared to 2015-2016. Isn't it worthy investment in the long run? Now, if you want to explore new wells, it's not that today I say I want to explore, then tomorrow I get the well. <laughs> Usually it's a long process, right? Um, and that's why every time when you see Petron Petronas come out with news that they found new oil field, Usually is a very big cheer. Yeah, you found oil field. We'll have more oil to produce. And that process is a very long process, right? You need to find and the earth is very big. So um, I'm sure they have a lot of initiatives for exploration. So until they found something new, then we will have to stick with what we already have today. Okay, XCJ Smith asks, I want to ask, is Malaysia highly exposed to China economy? That is why our ringgit is also dropping. Kindly give opinion. Um, well, China is one of our largest trading partners. So yes, Malaysia is highly exposed to the Chinese economy. But is that why our ringgit is dropping? Um, uh, that is just part of the reason. I still think the big portion of the reason is because of the US interest rate. That's my opinion. Uh, there's less investment in oil and gas, uh, mainly because of ESG, uh, also with the craze behind uh, renewable energy recently. 
um, yes, you are correct, but um, I think the transition from oil and gas to renewable energy is going to be a slow process because renewable energy is not mature enough to sustain the world's activities. To give you some context, right? Yes, Malaysia, we have sunlight every day. So it makes a lot of sense for Malaysia to deploy solar as one of the renewable energy solution. Now, personal experience, because I installed solar panel on my house, um, my solar panel do not produce the amount that is stated in my contract. <laughs> Why? It's not because the sun is not shining. It's because sometimes the cloud cover the sun, so you have less sunlight. Then sometimes it's raining, then you have less sunlight. You know, you have a lot of reason that affects the production of solar energy. So while you can install whatever capacity that you want, but in terms of production, it is not so predictable. You still rely on mother nature to tell you how much they want to give you, right? The energy. So it is a very big question mark unless we come out with capacity which is like 200% more than what we require. Then yala, if you have less sunlight, it doesn't matter because I have 200% extra. But if we are not ready to do that, then we still need to have a very good reliable source of energy at this point. And the most reliable energy at this point, I cannot think of anything else. It's only oil and gas. Okay, with more interest rate hikes by US Fed and looming recession by next year, do you expect another bear market next in 2024? Um, again, my personal opinion, and this is not financial advice, my personal opinion is I'm inclining more towards a bear market in 2024. Unless... Actually, I don't know what's the unless, <laughs> right? Because you increase the interest rate, what the Fed wants is a high unemployment rate, right? High un unemployment rate means a lot of people don't have jobs. When a lot of people don't have jobs, then how are businesses going to make profit? They are not going to make profit. Share price is not going to be good. So I really don't see where the boo is going to come from. Maybe it will come to a point where, oh, the economy is almost going to break and then the Fed say, okay, okay, enough, enough interest rate hike. Now I want to start to cut interest rate. Then maybe, maybe you can expect a bull then. Lah. But I don't think that's going to happen in 2024. Maybe 2025. Okay, a follow-up question. Is the US economy still good with so much interest rate hike? Is there any data indicate that the US is still capable to continue to raise interest rate? Interesting question. Now, interest rate continue to go up, right? What the Fed wants to see is very bad economic data, right? They want unemployment rate to go up. They want your sales to come down. They want, um, basically, they want people to suffer. But surprisingly, US economic data is super strong. <laughs> it's super strong, right? Unlike China, China is starting to show weakness already, right? Their, their youth unemployment is 20%. US, no such thing. Even the unemployment rate went up, right? It only went up by 0.2%. From 3.5 to 3.8, no, sorry, 0.3%. Only increased by 0.3%. And this increase is not because people lose job. It's because more people are coming back to the workforce to look for job. And because the number of people looking for job increased, so therefore it looks like the unemployment rate has increased. 
it's still pretty strong, right? So I'm not too sure why US is so king, but I don't know. <laughs> Maybe another rate hike will pull them down, right? Okay, Jim Wong asks, will you be planning to show your new home solar setup? Uh, well, <laughs> I already made a video on my new house, so I don't think I'm going to make another one specifically for solar alone. But I think Peter is quite attracted to my solar setup and he is thinking about installing one for his own. Maybe we can ask him to make a video on that. As a retail investor, is it possible to beat the market in return, especially in bear market? Okay, retail investors, um, at the end of the day, what we want? Um, actually, we just want two things. Number one, don't lose money. And number two, I have passive income in my investment, right? So in a bear market, it's actually a good opportunity for you to accumulate stock prices at a low why this is important is not because you want the share price to go up after that in a bull run. It's because when you buy stock prices at the low, you will effectively be getting a higher dividend yield assuming the company continues to pay the same amount. What do I mean by that? If the share price is $100 and if the company pays $10 dividend, it's 10% yield, right? But if let's say the price falls to $50, drop by half, but they still continue to pay you $10 dividend. Now your yield suddenly becomes 20%. Right? So actually in the bear market, if you can find a strong fundamental company to invest, and if you are confident that the, the, the company is going to continue to pay the same amount of dividend, this is the best opportunity. Or maybe six months down the road is the best opportunity. I don't see the Fed to stop raising the interest rate. I'm not sure exactly, but just need to be more prepared. Yes, I think you are correct. Uh, was your, your thought on Maybank and CIMB seems to be making tons of profit this quarter and this, this what I'm not sure. Aren't they supposed to make less with inflation going up? Now, we are in an environment where interest rate is going up. When interest rate is going up, what happens is that the loans that you have with your banks, the bank is going to charge you higher interest rate the very next day after OPR hike. But your FD in the bank will not adjust until your tenure expires and renew. Right? If you, if you remember, your FD usually is a monthly FD. It's being renewed on a monthly basis, right? So let's say today, Bank Negara decided to increase the interest rate from 3% to 3.25%. Your FD, which is going to expire on the 30th of September, will not move until 1st of October, until the contract renews in October. So during this period of time, the bank will make more money from the loan that you pay to the bank but at the same time, they don't need to pay you higher interest on your FD yet. So this gap, right, is the gap that helps the bank make a lot of money in the past few quarters already. It is the same situation for US, it is the same situation for Malaysia and any other countries. So the banking sectors um, during this period of time, especially after the pandemic has been doing relatively well, and that's one of the reasons why banking stocks have been quite resilient um, in the past two years. Okay, will you, 
will you give your opinion on during the depreciation of ringgit, you would convert more to foreign currency to hedge further depreciation because this is starting to look like Lebanon. I'm scared. Okay. Uh, now, I think this, this question has been asked when ringgit was 450. And the question was, should I convert my ringgit now to US dollar at 450? Now, retrospect today is 467, then of course you can confidently say that at 450 you should change. But at that point, it came out from $4 to $4.50. It's more than 10% depreciation. It's very difficult to imagine that it can continue to go up and you can expect that at least it will fall back down to maybe $4.20, $4.10, that kind of level. So we're in a similar situation again today, right? We are at $4.67, we are at $4.70. Yes, we already kind of expect the Fed is going to increase the interest rate maybe a couple of times more. So where is this going to bring the ringgit to? Would it be five ringgit? Even if it goes to five ringgit, something will break in the economy eventually, right? And something will trigger the Fed to say that now I need to start cutting interest rate, right? When they cut interest rate, chances are then US dollar will start dropping. Ringgit will start appreciating. So do, do you have that window or do you have the speed or the ability to go in now and then by the time the Fed starts to lower interest rate, then you pull back your money back to ringgit. If you, if you have that kind of readiness and that kind of execution plan, maybe you can go for it. But if you're the kind of person who just put it there and then 10 years later come back and see what happens, then I suggest you not to. Lah, because now everything is very fluid. We don't know what everyone is trying to do. We may never know what is going to happen. And therefore, we really don't know where the currency is going to go. Is cash in FD still the king? I'm, 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 I, I don't really understand the question. Well, according to our former prime minister, cash is king. <laughs> All right. Is there any other questions? If there are no other questions, we are only two minutes away from my new video. I don't know, not two minutes, ever, 17 minutes away from our, our new video release on the FAQ show. Um, oh, wait, got a new question. <laughs> okay, what investment advice would you offer to a 32-year-old earning 18000 in gross income? Wow, that's high income, man. Well, having house and car loan totaling amount 5000 Wow, that's a very comfortable financial situation that this 32-year-old is in. What investment advice? So 18 minus 5, you have 13,000 minus tax and all that. Wow, you have saving of close to, you have a disposable income of close to 10,000 a month. You can do a lot of things, man. Um, yeah, but given that the market is not going to be great, um, yeah, then you can take the advice from carrot, carrots, carrots, Carrot suck, right? Carrot suck, cash is king. Keep, keep cash first until the day comes where price is a little bit cheaper. Then you can deploy your money into various asset classes. Okay, I guess no more questions for tonight. Um, thank you very much, um, you guys, for staying on today. Uh, we, our team here had a very stressful night tonight, uh, trying to firefight for the past half an hour to get this live on. So a big hand of applause to them. Um, yeah, and see you guys next week, man. Right? Should I still take this question or not? Uh, okay, lah, just one last question, okay? Just one last question and then we will call off for the night and then uh, we can 
we can call it a night. Okay, what do you think of investing in Singapore given the strong currency and strong government? Uh, in terms of stock market, Singapore is always the boring market. Um, yeah, they have very good read market where they can give you 6%, 7% dividend yield. Uh, yes, they have also have very strong bank. They are the three largest bank, OCBC, UOB and DBS. Um, but mm, they don't go anywhere one. Right. So you can always use Singapore as a currency hedge in the sense. Right. So, or at least that's what I do with my investment in Singapore. But this is not investment advice. Don't take my words for, for it. Go and check with your uh, professional bankers and whatnot to give you a proper advice. Okay, um, I think that's all for tonight. Thanks for watching and see you guys next Thursday. And don't forget to watch the new FAQ show at 9.45 tonight. See you. Good night. Take care.